Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in this week for Jerome McDonald. Today, Presidents Trump and Putin met in Helsinki, Finland. They met alone with only their translators present. This is Special Prosecutor Bob Mueller issued indictments last week of Russian military and intelligence officials for cyber attacks against the U.S. But polling suggests Americans' support for the Mueller investigation is declining, and today's meeting had no official agenda with no plans to make significant commitments. So why exactly should we care about this meeting? To answer, we're joined by Uri Friedman, a global affairs writer for The Atlantic. Also with us is Matthew Rojanski. He's director of the Keenan Institute at the Wilson Center. Uri and Matthew, thank you both for joining us on Worldview. Good to be with you. Uri, I'll start with you. Why should we care about this meeting? I think for three reasons, and and one was vividly on display at the press conference that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump had uh, uh, earlier, just a a few minutes ago. Um, And one of the big reasons is that election meddling is still a very live issue. You know, every country is vulnerable to cyber attacks. We just had the director of national intelligence in Washington last week saying that the lights are, the warning lights are blinking red uh, for America's cyber vulnerabilities. And this was a chance for Donald Trump right after his uh, own Justice Department issued indictments against Russian intelligence officers to talk to Donald to talk to Vladimir Putin about this and to raise the issue. And what we saw at the press conference is Donald Trump evaded uh, that question once again, refused to actually say that he believed Russia interfered in the election. Uh, So that is something that, you know, if he doesn't, if he is refusing to take that seriously, he's also refusing to guard against the next uh, such attack. And we actually had the Homeland Security uh, head uh, just a few days ago say that there could be issues in the midterm election. So that's one reason. And the second reason is these, this is Russia and the United States are superpowers, right? They, they are at the center of a lot of the top challenges to the world today, from the nuclear pursuits of Iran and North Korea to nuclear nonproliferation. And so this was a chance to really address these issues. And Donald Trump has made that point, too. He said we should have a good relationship, not a bad relationship, because we need to solve these issues. And so my big question coming out of this meeting is what have they accomplished on these pressing issues that the world faces? And Matthew, what are your thoughts on this matter? Why do you think people should care about this meeting? Well, you know, Steve, I was I was more hopeful uh, before the summit in that uh, I had gotten some sense of the broad agenda that the two would discuss. That, in fact, was discussed. Uh, we can tell from the opening statements from both sides that the important issues arose in some capacity. We don't know exactly what was said. So Syria was discussed, Ukraine was discussed, nuclear weapons, uh, counterterrorism, energy. Uh, What I was disappointed with was that there was no agreement, not even necessarily to resolve outstanding differences. That's probably a bridge too far for some time. But there was no agreement to establish any kind of uh, ongoing working dialogue on those problems. That's generally the way uh, you know, ro- government's not rocket science, right? That's generally the way governments approach these problems is they say, okay, well, we're going to uh, establish a working group between, you know, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Russian Chief of General Staff, and we're going to work on de-escalation in a broad region of southern Syria, uh, trying to get all foreign forces out, which would be code for, you know, getting the Iranians out of the region. You know, that sort of thing is what I sort of expected and hoped to hear. And, and the press conference at least fell short on that. Um, 
I, I, you know, I, I hear what uh, Uri's saying. I, I think he's right. Uh, politically, the, the meddling issue, the Mueller investigation, all that remains of vital importance, especially before the U.S. midterms. That said, I counted something like three or four questions that more or less repeated that same question from the Washington Press Corps on this. Uh, I thought that was a missed opportunity. Get the question in there. Get the president's answer. Okay, he repeats his position that we've heard many, many times before. And then ask them, what did they actually talk about, about all these global security issues? And I didn't get any of that. So I found myself pretty disappointed. And actually, I think it's important to to get it on the record, what the respective leaders said about um, election uh, meddling. And so first, we're going to hear President Trump's uh, response when asked about the Mueller investigation. That the, the probe is a disaster for our country. I think it's kept us apart. It's kept us separated. There was no collusion at all. Uh, everybody knows it. And also, it's important because the when President Trump and Putin met before, President Trump assured everyone that he did ask about this question of election meddling. But here is the first time you get to actually hear out loud uh, President Putin addressing that issue. The Russian state has never interfered and is not going to interfere into internal American affairs, including election process. Any specific material, if such things arise, we are ready to analyze together. For instance, we can analyze them through the Joint Working Group on Cybersecurity, the establishment of which we discussed uh, during our previous contacts. And so, gentlemen, you have a situation where both leaders, they're not acknowledging um, that what happened actually happened. And actually, there seems to be a back and forth. Some observers, observers are even saying that it seems coordinated in that regard. What are your thoughts on that? Well, if I can, uh, Steve, look, I think Putin is exceptionally calculated. I think Trump, we know very well, is is speaking off the cuff here. He is repeating uh, what he holds to be deeply true. He, he genuinely believes the entire investigation uh, is about collusion. Uh, he seems to, to set aside all the other points about what Russia did or didn't do. It's totally focused on whether he himself or his campaign colluded with them, and he says the answer is no. Putin, in contrast, you know, knows this issue cold and is totally calculated, so he says the Russian state didn't interfere. Okay, well, that's a technicality, right? He has admitted in the past that Russian hackers may have interfered. Uh, second, he, he actually conceded in this press conference for the first time that I have ever heard that he had a preference. He had what some might call a motive. He had a preference that Trump won the election, and he said, why? Because Trump was calling for improved relations with Russia. That's, that's actually a big admission. I suspect it was calculated. Um, I don't know what happened behind closed doors. No one does. Uh, but it may be that Putin said something to that effect to Trump, and he couldn't then very well, in front of Trump, walk it back when confronted on the record to do so. Uh, again, I, I don't believe for a second that that was a mistaken admission by Putin. He calculates everything he said. And then, and then lastly, um, there was a reference by both of them 
to a proposal uh, in response to this issue uh, from the Russian side saying, well, why don't you send your investigators over to Russia and you can interview the people that you allege to have been involved with this. The condition for this will be we can send our investigators to the United States to interview people, including officials and law enforcement, about other crimes that we allege to have been committed against Russia, like tax evasion by Bill Browder. Um, so it's probably a non-starter, but interesting that that seems to be a next step in the conversation so far. Uri Friedman, uh, what is your report? your reporting tell you, and based on what Matthew just said, if you agree with that, um, how does this change the course of the investigation? Well, you know, Donald Trump called uh, Vladimir Putin's proposal an incredible offer. I think it, it may be very hard actually to implement uh, in the sense that you, the Russia is looking for reciprocal uh, uh, cooperation here where they can, in, you know, in, interview and interrogate persons of interest in the United States that the United States may not agree to. Um, and more broadly, it's unclear how much that would really advance Robert Mueller's investigation. But I think Matthew does have a really made a really good point also on what Vladimir Putin said. And I agree this was a study in contrast. You have Donald Trump, who was speaking very much off the cuff, and Vladimir Putin, who calibrates everything he says. Uh, Vladimir Putin said it was not the Russian state, where I think it was amazing to watch what he said and, and did not say um, about Russia's involvement uh, in, in, in the 2016 election interference is that it's much harder for Vladimir Putin to deny this after we've had the Department of Justice issue indictments against 12 Russian military intelligence officers and in forensic detail talk about the ways in which they tried to meddle in the election and to affect the outcome. Um, and so once you have that kind of detail uh, in an indictment, it's much harder to say, well, it might have been Russian hackers, but it wasn't the Russian state. This was an allegation that it was a Russian military. And on the point of what Donald Trump says, and to Matthew's point about how he always focuses on the collusion element of that, I think that's really important to dwell on, because I think it, it does speak to potentially why Donald Trump has so consistently uh, re refused to acknowledge uh, Russia's inter interference in the election and to confront them about it and to uh, make sure they don't do it again because it's I think you know watching him and from the people I talked to through my reporting it, he, he is not separating this question of election interference from the question of his legitimacy as a leader so you'll notice that if when people look at the press conference they'll see and instead of, you know, instead of confronting Vladimir Putin on live television saying, don't do it again, he talks about his big election victory over Hillary Clinton and how he did a great job and what the Electoral College uh, results were. And I think it, that's because he feels that his probe is a direct affront to his legitimacy as a leader and ammunition for his critics. And so he, he won't go there in terms of condemning Russia. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and you were just listening to Uri Friedman. He's a global affairs writer for The Atlantic, and he's joined by Matthew Rojansky of the Wilson Center. And we're talking about the meeting today between Presidents Trump and Putin. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about lawsuits in U.S. courts, which many believe could officially strip Puerto Rico of the right to govern itself. And so um, there was a press conference between the two gentlemen, and the press conference did get off to a sort of a rocky start. Let me just recap what happened. Two people walked in and asked this journalist to come with them for what he described as questioning. He is from, again, the nation. Those journal, uh, That journalist at first refused. It was a bit of a standoff. Still calm, still peaceful. You probably saw some of the video there. He returned into the room. He had left his personal things in there. And when I asked him, sir, can you explain what happened? What did they want to talk to you about? He said, they've told me. They say I have a malicious item. They claim I have a sign. He then pulled out of 
of his backpack, Lester, a piece of paper, an 8 by 10 piece of paper that had the word nuclear weapons ban on it, uh, nuclear weapons treaty ban. We'll, we'll get you that video in a moment. And he was sort of holding it up as then members of the media were beginning to take pictures of it, saying, I just wanted to ask about it. I just wanted to ask about it. That is the point when the commotion really escalated. And you saw those, uh, what I believe are agents, come in. There's somebody now taking and getting this gentleman's personal belongings, his laptop, his phone, his backpack have all remained in the room. Uh, and you can see now this, this person, this security person, is walking out this man's personal belongings. Uh, so this is remarkable. That clip was from NBC News. Uri Friedman from The Atlantic, you're a journalist then. So what are your thoughts on this behavior by the Russian government? Yeah, I mean, well, it speaks directly to the fact that Russia is not a free society, that it clamps down on journalists uh, and, and the free press and doesn't allow them to ask critical questions. And actually, one of the things that I was most struck by uh, in watching the press conference between the two leaders was that Vladimir Putin fielded a couple questions from, you know, U.S. journalists, which is uh, not that common. Uh, he does do a, actually very long, hours-long press conferences all the time, but the questions are pretty heavily managed in terms of who gets to ask them, and even when they seem kind of critical. He, it's, um, it's often done in a way that is serving to him. So this was, and it was actually an interesting juxtaposition because on the one hand, you had this journalist taken away for seeming, you know, a sign that wasn't particularly, um, uh, you know, critical of Vladimir Putin was just talking about nuclear weapons, but taken away, uh, you know, and speaking to the fact that uh, Russia is a repressive society in terms of its government policies on the media, but then also agreeing probably because he had no choice uh, appearing next to the American president to field a couple questions from journalists. So we saw we saw kind of some concessions on one hand and a hard stance on the other. Uh, but I think it was very telling that this journalist was removed. And I also think it highlighted one other aspect of the U.S.-Russia relationship right now, which is there is not a ton of focus on human rights as there has been in past administrations. Donald Trump likes to say that, you know, every country in the world, there are human rights abuses, uh, there are elements of repression, and we're not going to focus on that and trying to forge better relationships with Russia. Matthew, uh, Uri mentioned human rights. And as you know, President Trump was criticized after he met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un without going hard at him on issues like the hundreds of thousands of political prisoners that Mr. Kim holds in his gulags. And on our show, we recently talked about uh, Russia's treatment of political dissenters like Ukrainian filmmaker Oleg Sensov, who's languishing in a Russian gulag. And uh, Sensov is currently on a hunger strike. So, uh, Matthew, how big a role do you think human rights should play in geopolitics? You know, human rights uh, has been both uh, de facto and uh, formally, politically, legally, uh, a part of human of, of uh, international relations, at least since its recognition in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the UN uh, after World War II. Uh, I mean, it's part of shaping the international consensus around the idea that uh, the way that individuals are treated by their own government, uh, by uh, foreign governments, or by private actors, is legitimately the subject of international relations. This was confirmed in the what's known as the Helsinki Final Act. Um, it's actually important given that the meeting uh, today was happening in Helsinki, uh, and that's the basis for the European security order uh, that dominated in the second part of the Cold War and, and after the end of the Cold War. So as a matter of, of strict international relations history, uh, human rights has always, always been a part of the dialogue now. How do you balance it against competing issues? And this is actually a, a good opportunity to go back to this point about the reporter 
removed from the press conference. I think a um, couple points there. One, I'm not actually sure that that was uh, Russian security who removed them. It, it could very well have been either local security or, or uh, American or both. Um, and second, uh, the issue that this individual was uh, ostensibly going to protest on is actually one of the central issues that is often taken as a counterpoint uh, to human rights, and that's the nuclear issue. So there's a there's already been signed by more than 100 states a complete nuclear weapons ban treaty. And one of the issues on which uh, American leaders across the political spectrum and Moscow agree on is that they're opposed to the total nuclear weapons ban. So this is one of the areas where the United States and Russia are actually in the same place. This is not just Trump and Putin uh, and, and are opposed by a growing international consensus. So it doesn't surprise me at all. This is not a, a per se a press freedom in Russia uh, versus you know the perfect democracy of the United States issue. This is an issue where something uncomfortable for both leaders was going to be underscored by an individual who had gotten himself into the press conference. Uh, he may have had a journalist credential. Uh, he may not have. I saw some reporting that said he he also has a, an NGO spokesperson role, the Institute for Public Advocacy, or something like that. So, you know, this was something that was going to make both leaders uncomfortable. So it doesn't surprise me at all uh, that they pulled him out of the room. But it underscores this trade-off between, well, what are the basic rules of international civil behavior, of uh, international political and human rights, versus what are the national security interests of the major powers in the world, and that for better or worse, is the essence of diplomacy. And you just heard Matthew Rojansky, director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. He was joined by Uri Friedman, who's a global affairs writer at The Atlantic. Thank you both, gentlemen, for telling us why the Trump-Putin summit matters, and we'll certainly be following this down the road. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. In Bob Mueller's recent indictment against Russian officials, he cited cyber attacks against state and election boards. Just as the news dropped, secretaries of state, election directors, and federal cybersecurity personnel were having their last meeting before the 2018 November midterms. The Illinois Elections Board was listed as one of the most compromised. The indictment stated half a million Illinois voters were impacted. Illinois officials, using a different methodology, put the number of impacted voters at 76,000. Recently, Jerome McDonald spoke with Claire Malone, senior political writer for 538, about how Russia's cyber invasion of Illinois elections and how these future invasions could impact us. She published an investigation into America's vulnerable election systems. So in 2016, in June of 2016, right around the same time that, you know, as I said before, Russian hackers were scanning these 21 states, well, they found a way in in Illinois. And that was through the state's online voter registration, the online form where you sort of sign up to vote. They found a way where they could sort of bombard that page with a lot of attacks. And they got in the system and they hung out for a couple weeks. And sometime in early July, attacks on the system spiked. We don't really know why. It could be a mistake. Maybe they wanted people to know they were there. And people from the Illinois Elections Office noticed, took the site offline, notified the Department of Homeland Security. But Illinois was actually the only confirmed state that these Russian cyber actors actually got into. And, and I did talk to the Illinois people who said, yeah, you know, like this is something that we're working with the Department of Homeland Security on, but it's something we're worried about. And I will say, you know, to give the elections officials side of things, one thing that they said is, you know, we don't want people to not 
turn out to vote. We don't want them to have no faith in the Illinois elections system and the fact that their vote will count. So so one of the things that they're worried about as we're all talking about hacking is, you know, we don't want people to be scared off from voting. And I think cyber experts would answer that with totally fair, but we want people to have the right amount of faith in their system, i.e. we want the government to have, you know, bolstered security as much as possible to give people the proper amount of faith. But Illinois was a state that was hacked by Russian actors. They've since fixed a problem that let the Russian cyber actors into the system. But as I say in the piece, you know, we don't know what other attacks state-sponsored hackers might have formulated in the past couple of years, whether or not they're hanging out, you know, dormant in other systems. We don't know what's, we sort of don't know what's going on. And maybe people in the federal government do, and that information is classified. But right now, we're all kind of operating off of what we hear at congressional hearings, where intelligence officials say that we're maybe not doing enough. And, you know, if you'll watch some of the senatorial hearings that have been happening, U.S. senators from both parties are very displeased with the election preparation that we have for the 2018 midterms. We then asked Claire Malone about going back to paper ballots. So paper ballots, usually what we're talking about with paper ballots is that they you fill out the bubble and then they're optically scanned is what they call it. So it's kind of like when you would take the SATs or any kind of Scantron test in high school yep. or college. That's what it is. And those have a paper trail. You can actually count the ballot afterwards, which is good because um, some electronic voting machines, they just have the electronic record. Um, but optical scan machines can also be hacked. So we need to be just as vigilant. Um, with making sure that those machines are up to security standards and that the proper kind of post-election audits are being done on paper ballots as well. And then we finally asked Claire, what do we need to do to be better prepared for the next cyber attack? There is a little bit of a problem with cyber literacy. People who came of age as the Internet evolved maybe organically know, oh, that's that's probably a phishing scheme and that one isn't. But some people have to to learn, you know, more, you know, they have to become more cyber literate. And I think it's important that elections officials, old, young, whomever, um, are well versed in that kind of cyber hygiene, that kind of cyber security, where they know what emails are bad. They know to use a USB stick once and then throw it out after they've used it on ballot making. Claire Malone is senior political writer for 538. And when we come back, Puerto Reconstruction, our weekly look at fellow Americans in Puerto Rico. And we're going to come back and talk about Puerto Rico every Monday through the end of hurricane season. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And we're continuing our series every Monday during Hurricane Series called Puerto Reconstruction. 
And last Friday, a federal judge appointed by the Supreme Court to oversee Puerto Rico's debt upheld the legitimacy of the federal board tasked with repayment. The lawsuit was brought forth by Aurelius Capital Management, which owns about $500 million of Puerto Rico's $70 billion of defaulted bonds. Joining us to talk about it is Yarmar Bonilla, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Caribbean Studies at Rutgers University. She's co-founder of the Puerto Rican Syllabus, and she's in Puerto Rico right now. Welcome back to Worldview, Yarmar. Hi, glad to be here. So this court case was filed by one of the people who wants all of his money back from Puerto Rican bonds. So what can you tell us about the lawsuit? Well, it was filed about six months ago, and it is uh, it was filed by bondholders. But there were other plaintiffs involved, including a Puerto Rican union, the, the biggest union uh, connected to the power industry. And part of why these two you know, uh, entities that you might think of as having contradictory interests were involved in this lawsuit is that for both of them, it would be beneficial to have the the federal oversight board ruled inconstitutional. The bondholders uh, think that that would help them um, achieve federal uh, support for their, you know, to get their claims back. And meanwhile, the unions in Puerto Rico think that that would help them uh, remove some of the austerity politics that the board has been imposing. Now, Yaramar, can you briefly describe this oversight board, um, what it is and what is its function? Well, it was established about two years ago, and in in some ways it resembles the kind of emergency management uh, functions that have been put into place in bankrupt municipalities like Detroit. But in Puerto Rico, it takes on an additional colonial component in that it's been federally imposed and uh, with with absolutely no input from, uh, you know, local uh, voters. They weren't able to decide if they wanted this in place or not, or even uh, local politicians were not really able to decide if they wanted this or not. And when it was originally being discussed, it was imagined as a trade-off for federal for a federal bailout. So it was imagined that the f- federal government would help Puerto Rico's uh, debt situation somehow, and in exchange they would have this oversight board. But in the end, there was no bailout. There's been no federal funds uh, given to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is funding the fiscal board entirely and has no say in how it operates, in its budget, or in, in the decisions that it makes about Puerto Rico. So earlier this month... Um this judge who ruled against the U.S. Civil Rights Commission expressed concern that the debt restructuring process didn't protect the rights of U.S. citizens on the island. So what kind of human rights concerns do you have on the island uh, to, in the midst of this austerity? Well, the argument was that put, that essential services were not being protected. And the Puerto Rican government has not said what it considers essential services and what it would be, you know, what would be off the table for budget cuts. And so there's concerns that already um, education is clearly on the chopping block. Uh, about two thirds of, of schools have, have been targeted for closure and, and some of them will, will already be closed and will not be reopening for the next school year. Um, health services have been cut dramatically and also public safety general things like roads um, after the hurricane there are still 10 months after the hurricane most traffic lights are not working street lights are not working there's been a kind of social abandonment that is felt and 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 that has people really concerned about what exactly people can expect from their government in this moment of, of austerity and neglect and whom do the people blame the most 
Oh, that's a tough call because there's so many, there's so many f- fingers to point. I think, you know, people are very uh, frustrated with FEMA and, and a recent report that came out uh, from FEMA. FEMA admitted that they were not prepared, that they did not do enough, that what they did was insufficient and inadequate. They gave, you know, they, they did not give sufficient water supplies and food supplies. And, and there was reports in the newspaper today that 60% of FEMA claims have been denied. And of those denied, 70% have been denied on appeal. So so clearly there's there's a lot of discontent with FEMA. There's a lot of upset also with the federal government and the lack of, of more assistance. And there's also a lot of frustration with the local government with um, the claims of corruption, the kind of mismanagement of funds that, you know, such as the, the whitefish scandal that went um, viral and all all, a bunch of other small local level scandals that the local government has had. And so, Yaramar, when we're talking about this, you have this wealthy venture capitalist who's filing this lawsuit because he knows that this oversight board could give him a haircut on giving him his money back. And so, on the one hand, the lawsuit serves a purpose to where it can give Puerto Rico more autonomy, but on the other hand, it could drain the treasury. And so when we're talking about sovereignty, where do you stand on this issue? Well, I think it's clear that the the fiscal board robs Puerto Rico of sovereignty and that it's a colonial imposition. So it's really hard to defend it. Um, Some people here, they defend it in a, in a, in a way, arguing that it's 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 the kind of least of all evils, and that there, anything else would be worse. And they particularly fe- fear the imposition of a new board that would be nominated by Donald Trump instead of Obama. And so, so the people who accept the board, it's not that they think it's good, it's not that they think it's appropriate, but rather there's a kind of lack of imagination about other solutions. But there have been other possibilities discussed, and and one of them is precisely for. For the U.S. government to take responsibility for the the way it structured Puerto Rico as a site for investment and for debt. Um, it was written into the Commonwealth Constitution that was written by Congress that Puerto Rico would be, you know, investments in Puerto Rico would be tax exempt for uh, U.S. investors and that those, you know, servicing that debt would come above any other kind of public services in Puerto Rico. And so some of the folks who, you know, the the labor movements and others that have been trying to battle against the fiscal board and get it removed, they want to push for other ways of thinking about this debt and connecting this financial crisis to also the colonial debt in Puerto Rico and to rethink what the United States owes Puerto Rico as its colonial territory that it's held for over 100 years. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and this is Puerto Reconstruction, our regular Monday segment on Puerto Rico through the end of hurricane season. And with us is Yaramara Bonilla of Rutgers University. She's author of the book, Non-Sovereign Futures, French Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment. Yaramar, so there's a recent report that came out from FEMA, and it was just a few days ago, and FEMA admitted that it was woefully unprepared for Hurricane Maria. And it's sort of something that everyone already knew, but it's another story when FEMA, the government, actually comes forward and admits it itself. Um, How prepared for hurricane season are we now? Oh, my goodness. 
that's something people here barely want to discuss. You know, at the beginning of last week, we had the threat of Hurricane Beryl and a lot of, or Burl, sorry, and a lot of people here were really triggered and, and, you know, ran to the stores to get water, to get supplies. And there was a real fear that was disproportionate with the threat that Burl uh, constituted. But I think that just people know that we are really just unprepared for anything. And, and at myself, where I'm staying, I lost electricity, even though there was no hurricane of the the electric grid was put together in such a patchwork fashion um, that it really can't withstand anything. I mean, then there's still 60,000 people uh, living with just blue tarps on their homes that are not even meant to be used for more than 30 or 60 days, and they've had them for 10 months. So clearly, uh, another hurricane right now would be a complete catastrophe, and and it's hard to even think about the impact that it would have. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I recall watching news clips from Weather Channel and others where they talked about the hurricane was coming and then a couple of days later, never mind. I mean, I couldn't imagine being a person on the island and then you see that news report and it looks catastrophic and then all of a sudden, never mind, and have to go through that up and down all through the course of the hurricane season has just got to be incredible. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about the fragility and vulnerability of things like the electric grid, but there's also the emotional fragility and vulnerability of the people here who have just been withstanding, you know, blow after blow and who feel such a sense of abandonment from both the local government and the federal government. When, when you think of, of, of FEMA and what it has done, the way it has rebuilt, it's treated the hurricane as a kind of once-in-a-lifetime once event, when in fact there are hurricane seasons every year in Puerto Rico. And so the way the way to think about rebuilding should have been in a way that took that into account. And, and you know, that's a fundamental problem with FEMA once it got restructured under Homeland Security. It became focused more around terrorist events rather than protecting people from kind of ongoing and increasing threats of, of environmental crisis, such as, as, as a hurricane, which will be increasing under global warming. So last question. Uh, you're down in Puerto Rico currently, and what are you doing down there? What are you seeing? Well, I'm I'm doing research about the long-term social and political impacts of the storm and, and connected to the debt crisis, which is what I was writing about before Maria. And so I'm, I'm intrigued about how um, things like these uh, court rulings that came down this year will have a long-term impact for the political status of Puerto Rico. Um, there were two conflicting uh, uh, rulings that came out this week. One, one was saying that the federal board is a territorial entity rather than a federal entity, whereas the other one was saying that it was a federal entity. So this might go all the way up to the Supreme Court and lead to a kind of historical discussion about the place of Puerto Rico in the United States. But I'm also interested in the social impact and how for example, you know, a, a short, a small little uh, tropical storm could cause such panic. And, and about how people who have been neglected by the government, abandoned by FEMA, how are they going to rebuild if they lost their entire home and did not get any help from FEMA or got a thousand dollars like some people have gotten? How are how are they envisioning the future and how do they imagine what, what's possible for Puerto Rico as a society in the face of these persistent crises? 
Well, Yarmar will certainly check back with you in the future. She's Associate Professor of Anthropology and Caribbean Studies at Rutgers University, co-founder of Puerto Rican Syllabus, and author of the book Non-Sovereign Futures, French Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment. Thank you so much, and we really appreciate you joining us for our weekly segment called Puerto Reconstruction. Thank you, and thank you for keeping Puerto Rico in the news. After the break, we'll bring you the Wines Report with Emily Wines, and we'll talk about why Americans aren't drinking as much champagne as you might think. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and today for Jerome McDonald. So, 2018 was the first Fourth of July in years that I didn't spend with my extended family in Memphis, Tennessee. And when we get together, we have a lot of common and also unique traditions. And I think many of us would get some very strange answers if we were asked about the origins of some of our popular traditions. For instance, when we lift a glass in celebration, why is it filled with champagne? Well, back with us to answer that question and to talk about the sometimes dark history of one of our favorite libations is Emily Wines, one of only 149 people in the Americas designated as Master Sommelier. Emily joins us occasionally for what we're calling the Wines Report, when we discuss more than just the taste of wine, but also the culture, history, and politics of wine. Emily is also Vice President of Wine and Beverage Experience for the Chicago-area winery Cooper's Hawk. Emily, welcome back to Worldview. Hi, thank you. So the things we do, like, for instance, toasting with champagne associated with celebrations. So why wasn't it gin or some other (laughs) spirit? Well, you know, Champagne has a long history when it comes to celebration. It was actually in the region of Champagne, France. Uh, all of the kings of France were coronated there. So that's sort of what started with the Champagne being celebratory. And then from there, it became such a popular style of wine, this fizz, that it automatically became associated with parties and celebration. And so is it true that Dom Perignon is responsible for inventing Champagne? Or No, not at all. Oh, you know, that's okay. one of, the, that's one of the, the great stories in Champagne but where they, they don't let truth get in the way of a good story. But in fact, Dom Perignon was more responsible for elevating all of the wines of the region and trying to make good red wine that didn't have bubbles in it. He was trying to make it not sparkling. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I understand that the region of Champagne has a rather dark history. So what's that it about? It does. It does. There's really two champagnes. There's Le Champagne, the champagne that we associate with celebration. And there's La Champagne, the region, which is might be the most blood-soaked part of, uh, of Europe. Almost all of the major wars went right through the region of Champagne. Uh, most recently, the biggest one, of course, being World War I, where all the trench warfare happened right in that region. So a lot of times when, when you have war, especially World War II, I remember someone telling me a story that the filling in a 
Twinkie used to be actually a real fruit or cream filling. And then during World War II, where we had to sort of take all of these resources and utilize them for the war effort, that's when we went to this sort of artificial filling and other stories like that. And so that they still make wine in the region during the war. They did. It was amazing. I mean, they're being bombed. They're underground in the tunnels and the caves, and, they, and yet they were still making champagne. Um, the Germans did actually take a good percentage of that champagne back to Germany with them. And there's wonderful stories about how people would wall up their, their hordes of champagne, uh, you know, be deep in their caves during the war. But but why, the champagne was still being made. Okay, and so when you have this region and you have all of these conquering armies that come through and these different peoples and all of a sudden you sort of they sort of bring their own culture and influences into the region and then the region impacts them uh, in, in the same way. And so what are some ways that the drink has maybe changed or how it's been influenced by other regions and countries and cultures? Well, you know, the biggest influence on champagne is actually the United Kingdom. Mm. So England is really responsible for inventing champagne as we know it. They were the ones that discovered that if you put a little bit of sugar into your wine, it'll start fermenting again and make it brisk or bubbly. And uh, these champagnes, when they would leave the champagne region, which was quite cold, by the time they made it all the way over to England, they would start fermenting again in the barrels. And it was something that the Champenois really tried to avoid, but the British loved it. And then the British also were responsible for making stronger glass bottles. And that actually allowed champagne to be safely transported over to England. And this, this craze for champagne really took off. Okay, so why is champagne specifically such sort of a, a general um, generic drink that seems to work in so many different ways and as opposed to wines and other spirits. What is it about? You know, champagne is something, and you know, and also when we talk about champagne, we're talking about champagne only from the one region of uh, Champagne, France. There's mm-hmm. lots of other sparkling wines out there. Um, but champagne itself is so versatile when it comes to matching it with food. You can pair it with oysters. You can pair it with red meat. There are some actually very rich champagnes, very full-bodied, that can work with uh, with a full meal. So it uh, and, and there's something about the bubbles and the acidity of champagne that make it so great with food. Emily Wines is vice president of wine and beverage experience for the Chicago area winery Cooper's Hawk. And she joins us occasionally for the wines report. And today we're talking about why we love to celebrate with champagne. Okay, so you've got some champagne here. I do. Now, what did you bring? So I brought a bottle of Aiglier Aurier. This is a champagne that uh, is, it's it's a grower producer champagne. And this is something that sommeliers are really hot on right now. It's really a new trend that you're seeing where, uh, um, rather than going with the big champagne houses. Let's now, you're a pro. Don't lose an eye or That's something. That's right. Okay, yeah. here we go. There we are. All right. You say when you open champagne, it should sound like a lovely Now, I should shot. say, Not you have this really, I mean, it is just hot, this champagne purse. It's black, <laughs> leathery, and it's... And it's thermal. <laughs> and it's thermal, too. So we're going to take a photo of it, and we're going to post it on our website to make sure that you can see it. I didn't know such things exist. Yeah, so you can have, have your, your champagne drinking be portable. And you can sneak it into ball games too, right? Absolutely. Okay. So here you are. It's a glass of champagne. So this is, a, like I said, it's a grower-producer champagne. So mm-hmm. in champagne, you have lots of farmers who are growing the grapes, and mm. you have a lot of really big houses that buy all the grapes. And then in a couple cases, you have some small grower-producers who are actually growing the grapes for the sparkling wines that they're making or the champagnes they're making. So really small, really unique, little small family All right. Makers. So educate the non-champagne yes. drinker in the proper way to... You know, champagne, well, there's a couple things. First of all, you can have your champagne in, in a flute, which is 
fun because you can see the nice long line of bubbles. I actually prefer to drink my champagne in a glass. It's mm. a little bigger so I can smell it. Mm. Um, but this one in particular, you know, just uh, first of all, we have to cheer. We have cheers. to toast. So cheers. To France, right? Mm. <laughs> actually winning the World right, Cup. Exactly. Right, exactly. There's a lot of champagne being drank there mm. this week. So this is really Very unique. Good. It's made with 100% Pinot Meunier, which is a red grape varietal. Mm-hmm. So you can see it's got a little bit of a darker color. And it's very rich. It's very full-bodied. So you know how we were talking about how champagne can go with a lot of foods? Sure. This is certainly rich enough to stand up to a steak. It's pretty full-bodied style champagne. Now, you spent time in the region. So um, what are the hidden gems in this region? You know, I've been to Champagne four times. I love it so mm. much. Uh, the city of Rams is really beautiful. It's a college town. It's not quite as touristy as some other uh, destinations like that in France. Uh, very charming. The Rams Cathedral, very old and historic. Um, also, right now is a great time to be there because this is the 100th anniversary of World War One, right. And so there's some incredible uh, displays at some of the different uh, wineries where you can see pictures of them living down in the caves during the war. Mm. And um, and it's also really wonderful to go there, not only to visit the, the big chateau, but also to go out into the countryside where these little villages have you know, 99% of the people in those villages work in the champagne right. business. It's right. quite cool. So when a town is famous for a one particular thing, mm-hmm. other drinks sort of get shortchanged. So what are yeah. the other wines and liquids in the region that we don't hear about? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, champagne, the sparkling champagne that we know is by far the, the main thing that you're going to find here. But there are dry wines being made there. They're called Coteau Champenoise, and those are quite good. So there's some very good red wines in particular, actually coming from the same area that this Aiglier Urie comes from in Ambonais. Um, there's also a, a spirit. It's called the ratafia, where they are mixing a little bit of a brandy made from the, the grapes of champagne with a little bit of unfermented grape juice. It's actually quite good. It's a little bit of, a, of an apéritif or um, almost like a dessert wine style. And uh, then the other thing, not really for drinking, but the other product of champagne is um, champagne vinegar. And they, you, it is a it mm. is a bylaw. They they take the yeast that's pulled out of the champagne and it, that is converted into champagne vinegar. So it's uh, you can. Find it all over, but there's some really wonderful. What do you do with champagne vinegar? Oh, you cook with it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. and so um, are there other parts of the world that try to do champagne or? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, all over the world. You know, champagne is just the most famous sparkling wine. So everybody who makes sparkling wines wants to make something that's kind of like champagne. Well, who's doing it well other than in You champagne, know, France. surprisingly enough, England. Mm. So the climate in England is, you know, with, uh, with a little bit of global warming, it's actually they're able to grow great grapes there. And the soil is very similar. In fact, the White Cliffs of Dover, that's the same ribbon of soil that goes all the way oh, through to champagne. Yeah, sure. It's really chalky soil. And so, so what are some of the other things that you can eat with champagne? Champagne that kind of gives oh, it you a can kick. eat anything. Oysters are, are, right. are a great one, especially the, like light, light blanc sure. de blanc style sure. champagnes. Um, but uh, I also really like fried food with champagne. One of mm. my favorite things to do is to have a big party, have a fryer, have everybody show up and bring things to throw in the fryer and batter up. So a po' boy sandwich uh, with your champagne. Okay, absolutely. very good. Bucket so, of chicken. <laughs> so I was talking. <laughs> I was talking to my producer earlier and just. I just, I'm not a fan, okay? Mm -hmm. But, and I also said, well, when I noticed when people give a toast, 
they'll take a couple of sips, put it down, then they go back to the wine. Or is that just in my head? Or I think that's just in oh, your head. Okay, okay. Well, how much wine, uh, champagne do we actually drink in the United States? You know, less and less. I, well, well I, I should say that's not quite true. We, we still drink quite a bit of champagne here, but there are just so many other really high-quality champagnes or sparkling wines to be found. On top of that, champagne, because it is, is so popular and it's such a small region, a lot of these champagnes are starting to become really popular in other places. Places like the Asian market is huge, and it's it's bringing the price of champagne up. And mm. so, I one of my fears about this region is that they're going to start kind of pricing themselves out of being an everyday drink. It really is being relegated to Some luxury boutique, or special yeah, occasions. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. And so, um, we're drinking less and less champagne. And give us sort of a list of the substitutes that people are. Well, uh, one thing that's really popular and and a fraction of the price is prosecco from northern Italy. It's very different in style, much fresher and fruitier. It's not as complex, not as rich. Fraction of the price. Yes. <laughs> until you actually buy it at the bar. And, <laughs> well, yes and, and then no. you have the various to, yeah. levels That's of true. it. And it's that not is true. so cheap. So, yeah. wow, no, it's interesting. True. So Emily Wines, uh, Vice President of Wine and Beverage Experience for the Chicago Area Winery, Cooper's Hawk. And Thank you so much for being with us. It's and my pleasure. We're looking forward to seeing you next time. I think you're going to be back in September. So yes. wh- where are you going to take us next? I'm going to talk about Mexico. Mm. You know, I was in Cabo and I was thinking, you know what? Most people just finish their drinking experience in Cabo at some beach bar, mm. which is not a bad place to have your drinking experience. But, you know, if, if you just go a little bit further, you can find some incredible things to try. Things like uh, mezcal, which is becoming really quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Mexican wine. There's a, a really old old traditional drink called pulque, which is having a bit of a revival. And uh, it's a, there's, there's some really interesting things okay, to try. Okay, exciting. Yeah. Well, that'll yeah. be great. Well, Emily Wines, thank you so much it's for my being pleasure. with us. We my look pleasure. forward to the next time on The Wines Report. Great. Issues like free trade and immigration have stirred passions and given rise to global waves of political populism and ethnic nationalism. We find ourselves here in large part due to artificial boundaries drawn decades and centuries ago. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have a roundtable discussion to ask a really big question. Why borders? So come back for that and more tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Julian Haida and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum in this week for Jerome McDonald. And you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.